0: This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.
1: Hi, Jonathan. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Does this time still work for you?
1: Sure. Go right ahead.
0: Great. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. guest today is president and professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He's the author of a number of books, including George Washington's Sacred Fire, Wall of Misconceptions. He co-authored with David Hall, A Theological Guide to Calvin's Institutes, Essays and Analysis. We welcome Dr. Peter Lillebach today to talk with us about confessions and history. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lillebach
1: It's a great joy to be with you, sir.
0: Well, I wanted to begin by asking this. From the vantage point of looking back over church history, what dangers do you see in in groups or churches that perhaps haven't been hemmed in by a confessional tradition?
1: Well, as you can expect, every human enterprise has its blessings and its dangers if it's uh, within the orbit of scriptural teaching. And uh, first of all, we want to start off by saying the scriptures tell us that we are to uh, protect and defend the body of faith that's been entrusted to us. We can go right back to the book of Jude where it talks about that faith that's been entrusted to the church. And with that in mind, there have been some who've said, you know, we really don't need any other creed in the Bible, because after all, the Bible is the deposit of God's revelation and truth, and that should be sufficient. The only difficulty, though, is that that claim has been used by people who've attacked the very heart of the gospel time and time again. In fact, we find that in Satan himself, when he was seeking to uh, overthrow the claim of Jesus as the Messiah, he appealed to the scriptures. And in doing so, he was mishandling them. And that has happened consistently throughout the ages. So one of the great values of having a confessional tradition is that it is addressing the dangers that have been facing the church throughout its history, finding the best biblical answers that have been produced, and then putting them together in a succinct manner so that the church Knows how to handle these questions when they come up again and again from one generation to the next. So, to put it very simply, we can say the great joy of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it has been taught by the Holy Spirit throughout all of its history, and that we are not the first ones to have to address the concerns of God's Word and, and the life of the Christian and his doctrinal position. And so, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Our faith is uh, molded and modeled by those who have gone before us, and we benefit greatly by their thinking. And on those questions that will keep on coming up again and again, we have a sure direction on how to handle them through the confessional heritage of the church. So obviously then, simply put, the confessions give us a clear place to stand when the heretical or dangerous misunderstanding of Scripture come against the church, as it will happen again and again.
0: One of the criticisms, or or perhaps just questions raised um, throughout this discussion of confessions, has been th- um, a question about whether robust confessions constrain the reading of scripture. So you've talked about how they protect us from error, but but can you give specific examples uh, in in history, or even just your general historical assessment of the role that confessions have played and the role that um, and, and and whether or not a robust confession has, in fact, constrained uh, the reading of Scripture and, and the a- advance in our understanding and preaching of the Word of God.
1: Well, clearly, if we look at the, the long history of the Church, when we go back to antiquity, we realize that very early on the debate began to circle around Who exactly is Jesus Christ? And if he is divine, how do we explain monotheism? If he is distinct from the Father or one with the Father? And who is this Holy Spirit? Is he a person, is he a power? Is he distinct from God or is he really part of God? Those great questions compelled the church to develop some of our classical language. For those that are regular worshipers in a confessional church heritage, they say the Nicene Creed which is shared by Christians from many denominations, Protestant, Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and beyond. But what happens here then is, as we move into the uh, medieval period and the Reformation period, there was the ability to say, well, we have addressed all the big questions and this is all we need. We don't need to go any further. And so then the question began to emerge. Well, who is able to answer the next big question that comes along? It's the Pope, as, since he's the final authority. Or is it a theologian? And so uh, it was possible to say, well, only a certain group of people can make a confession. And if these people don't make the confession, there can never be another legitimate confession. That's kind of the argument of what we can call the dogmatic creeds, the ancient church creeds regarding uh, Trinitarian theology and Christology. They're saying we don't have the Eastern and Western churches as one. We never can have another, quote, ecumenical or universal creed. But there were problems in the West, obviously, and there were attempts to address questions. In fact, the issues of Calvinism actually came up in the medieval period. Not not that we call them by the five points of Calvinism per se, but at the uh, Synod of Orange, there was actually discussion about election and predestination and the extent of the atonement. They were trying to, and they put together a creed. The question is, how valid is that? How broadly is it used? And that had never been addressed before. And of course, the Synod of Dort, once the Reformation comes, will address that in a far more final way. So one of the problems with all the creeds is what makes them legitimate? Who alone can establish them? Or can there be regional creeds or can there be denominational creeds? That's a foundational question that the church has to wrestle with, with every generation who speaks for us. And so, when the Protestant Reformation came on the scene, we think now the early Lutheran teaching, uh, they had the Augsburg Confession. It was very important early on when they were being challenged uh, by the Roman Catholic leadership in church and state to say, what do you believe? We want to see it. And so under Philip Melanchthon, guided by Luther's teaching, the first official Protestant creed was given, and it was arguably able to be said, these are not the teachings of our ancient creeds. You cannot hold these views." And the claim was, no, we can hold these views precisely because they are found in Scripture. One of the principles of the Reformation is we are not grounding it simply in the tradition of the church or the magisterial office of the pope, but it will be grounded in God's word, rightly interpreted, and that word is going to be proclaimed boldly by churches that are going to be molded by biblical authority. So what the Reformation did is it was saying, We can't stop with the ancient creeds because the the issues we are teaching are not addressed by them. And while we're disagreeing with the church and the church's magisterial function and it's theologians that are critiquing the New Lutheran movement, they're saying, you're not really critiquing us. You're critiquing the theology of Paul and Galatians and Romans and that we would rather stand with scripture and put it in a confessional form than just stand with tradition. So at that moment, we can see that creeds do not answer every question, and it brings us to the source of, well, where does theology come from? And the Reformation gave us this belief that we should operate with sola scriptura, that the scriptures alone are the basis of our faith. And if we hold that view then, then you can see that it's always possible if the scriptures are the primary authority and the creeds and confessions and catechisms are a subordinate authority, that there could be new biblical teaching that had not yet been officially declared and stated in confessional form, which means that every confession, while it is a great guide and it should be a great summary, it may not have addressed all that the church needs to clarify and resolve because new issues come up, new heresies arise, and the source of answering them is not just church tradition, but also the Bible. So we can see that the confessions can hold us back. They can restrain us. They can correct us. But they can also take the place of Scripture, and that we must never do. In my tradition as a Presbyterian, we call the confessions our subordinate standards. They're subordinate to Scripture, which means while we hold them with deep conviction and great respect, we believe it is always appropriate to say, well, how do we see this teaching flowing from Scripture? And where does Scripture speak in a way where the confessions did not really address this issue? And is there room to uh, modify the confession if we have a deeper understanding from the Scripture? So that that's the important point. Bible must be primary, Scripture and Creed secondary or subordinate. And that is especially the result of the Protestant Reformation as it moved beyond the Roman Catholic uh, view of the magisterial function of church leadership in the councils and the Pope and then subordinating the scripture to that. The Reformation turned that on the head and said, no, the scriptures must be primary and our creeds must be subordinate to them.
0: No, that's that's a very helpful survey because what it sounds like you're saying is that if we understand particularly the Protestant and Reformed creeds correctly, then there there's no way to read them in such a way that they sideline the Bible or take the place of Scripture? Because in fact, they're very explicitly um, not intended to do that. They're very explicit about the primary place that Scripture holds.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting debate that comes up in confessionalism. It's, uh, to use a couple Latin words, it's uh, a quia subscription or a quitanus subscription. Now, assuming that Most of us have forgotten a little Latin. We learned Now translate those. Uh, Do we hold the confession because they're scriptural? Or do we hold our confessions as far as they are scriptural? And one of the great debates that has occurred in confessionalism is to say, no, we now hold this because they are scriptural. This is what the scriptures teach. And when you take that position, that gives your creed a great deal of authority But it also has the danger of, which we were addressing in the previous discussion, of locking you into that view and saying, if you move from this, you're moving from Scripture. And I think a wiser position has been, we don't hold this because it's Scripture. We hold it as far as it is scriptural. So we're always looking to say, what does the Scripture really teach? Is it possible that in the blistering heat of theological controversy, positions were taken that reflect the scripture, but maybe they were hardened or they were too contextual and they really are not timeless. They meant something really important then, but they need to be reinterpreted in light of the one source that doesn't change, which is the scriptures themselves. As we see them now as the Holy Spirit's guiding us. And now with that movement, you have freedom, but you see there's still the danger. A liberal an unbeliever can say we need to abandon all the restrictions of confession because our modern culture has given us a whole new insight into everything. So there is no final perfect way of handling these questions, but we must understand the dynamics that are at work when we subscribe to a confession and how we use them in the context which we are working in. And that's part of, then, again, in my tradition, as part of what we call the book of church order, where you're basically saying, well, what does your subscription mean? How do you deal with someone who might take a view that's not consistent with that? Is it acceptable? Can there be an exception? If you have an exception, are you allowed to teach it, or must you basically say, I I hold an exception, but I will not teach it because I'm inconsistent with the group that I'm in? These are all the necessary byproducts, and I would put that all under that wonderful text of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14.40, where he says, do all things decently in good order. In other words, we should have an orderly procedure whereby we deal with our confessions and how we hold them and how we commit to them and how we uh, critique them and how we also might find an exception if our conscience mandates it in or our understanding of Scripture. So this is a a whole area of studies which we could call symbolics, the science of confessions and its uh, pastoral application to the church.
0: Well, one of the comments you made there leads right into my next question, which is this: many denominations and churches, um, and and I'm particularly thinking of the context here in the United States, but it's it's really not just at all limited to here. They started off with a robust confession, but then left it behind. And you mentioned some of the reasons for this recontextualizing and. Uh, and, and trying to, to keep up with what they see as current trends in, in modern thinking. But but in in your estimation, as you look back historically, are there common denominators in, in those kinds of declensions?
1: Well, I think one of the great dangers uh, in all areas of higher study, and let's be honest, theology is an academic discipline, although it ought to be a lot more than that. It is an educated discipline, and Paul warned us long ago that knowledge puffs up. And uh, he, he what he was saying is, is that as we become erudite, as we become scholarly, as we become learned, as we are able to command the sources and the original languages and history of the church, there almost becomes the temptation to say, well, you know, it's really my judgment that's the authority and not the judgment of even the scriptures. And so when we use the word liberalism, We are taking word that generally is very positive. You know, when you're a pastor and you pass the offering plate, you hope you have a lot of liberals out there who give with liberality and fill it up with joy. (laughs) But liberalism in this sense is we're cutting ourselves off from the authority and placing it all under our own autonomy, our own judgment. And this is what happens always in the source of uh, knowledge from generation to generation, sometimes in the lifetime of the scholar, which is saying, well, maybe I know better than those who've gone before me. Maybe I'm not really bound by what others are. And even the question that goes back to the garden, did God really say that? You know, we begin to question things that we hold. Those internal uh, doubts, the epistemological questions of, well, who is really the source of knowing? Is it me and my reason? Is it me and my experience? Is it the wisdom of the past? Those are the kind of things that we really have to take uh, seriously. And that's why Paul will say in Acts chapter 20, keep watch over the flock and over yourselves because out of your own midst will come forth wolves that will seek to destroy the flock. And so sometimes the greatest danger to the church is actually those that are in the care of the the church or the church is entrusted to their care and that's the pastors and elders of the church. And it begins with those internal doubts those reconsiderations. And so one of the wise things that churches have done when they do have confessional standards and vows that are taken, one of the vows has been, if you find yourself taking a position that's inconsistent with what sometimes has been called the vitals of the system of doctrine or the uh, essential doctrines of the faith, that you will of your own initiative report this to your presbytery or your let's say your overseeing body, so that it might be evaluated. I think that's now moving not only from the danger of pride, moving dangerously toward arrogance potentially, but also uh, moving in the direction of what we call accountability, which is I want to, with real humility, raise this question among those to whom I am accountable that will review my position and then the, the position historically that is honorable and appropriate is that there's a point where you say I just don't hold this. I don't think it's biblical, or I disagree with it. And the church says no, this is a foundational doctrine we must hold. Then that person should have the integrity, rather than causing a division, which ultimately is what the word her- heresy means in the original language is one who divides. Instead of dividing the body, that person will freely say, you know, it is best for me for the respect for the body to say, I I am not uh, able to subordinate my conscience or my teaching to the teaching of this community or this confession. And I ask that you will allow me to move beyond it to a place where I can serve in good conscience. Now, Sadly, a lot of people won't do that. Instead, what they choose to do is to attack the confession that they're part of and cause problems. Now, that raises another issue. Is it ever right to seek an amending of your confession? And that's another whole issue. And how do you go about it? And so there are are situations where confessions have been amended and maybe for the better. But that's, that's a problem. So there's no easy answer to these more complicated questions. And the, I think the beginning point always begins with integrity and accountability. I've come to this, and if it's because I don't believe the Bible anymore, and I want to leave. Well, then you shouldn't amend your confession. You should leave. If you come to it because you're wrestling with scripture and you think the scriptures have not been well served at a key point of the confession, then humility requires, and believe not that you try to change the church on your own, but you go to those that are your overseers in accountability. So I see this issue. Will, will you discuss it with me? And while it may not be directly applicable, I think what we read in Uh, Peter's epistle where he says uh, no scripture is given to private interpretation, which means we should have the joy of opening up our interpretive wrestling or confessional biblical teaching to others so that they might guide us, critique us, and help us to clarify concerns that we have.
0: Yeah, and you made such an important point there, which is that does require a degree of integrity and it also requires these structures be put in place that go along with the confession that um, that allow for um, uh, examination that allow for submitting your views to to uh, a larger body and, and all those other things a lot of inner interrelated parts there
1: i uh, i think this this is a challenge of course for those who want to be confessional let's say in a context where maybe they're, they they do not have an ecclesiastical network i would urge an independent or solo pastor to find a body that he can work with precisely for these reasons, for his own accountability, as well as the discipleship and nurture of others, so that you're, even if it's a loose network, so you have that ability to say, I hold this view, I think we share it together. Here's my concern, what do you think? And so there's this ability to check and balance each other under the Scriptures.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Um last question you've mentioned a lot of different issues related to the history of confessions and particularly the history of protestant confessions and then also just some 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 wise words about how these things need to be implemented and understood Do you have any resources, any books that you'd recommend on this topic, either on the history of a particular confession or the the history of confessions in general, or on how confessionalism is, is worked out in the life of a local congregation or an individual minister?
1: Well, there are many things that we can have here. Uh, A very popular book that maybe a number of folks have already encountered through uh, Dr. Truman here at Westminster is called The Creedal Imperative. This makes the case why we should take creeds very, very seriously in our lives. That would be a good introductory uh, work. A broader work that really spans the whole history of confessionalism up to, let's say, the early 1900s or so is called *Shafts: Creeds of Christendom. It's a three-volume work. And uh, it has the creeds in their original languages, which sounds like you need to be a scholar. But Schaff wrote very clearly. uh, And where his English exposition is included, you can see the history and the theology, and you can read the creeds. They're all translated into English along with the original languages. And you can see the the marvelous history of the church going back into antiquity, right up into the Reformation and post-Reformation period with the creeds. That is very helpful. There are some works that have been done. There's a work by Joel Beakey and Sinclair Ferguson that actually lays out the Reformed creed side by side in parallel columns, so you can see how the different Reformed traditions have wrestled with creeds. It's fascinating that the concerns of one church are not always duplicated in another Reformed church. They're, again, there are historical reasons why doctrines develop and why they and you can see there's development. They don't they don't express them in precisely the same way. There are significant nuances and variations, and it helps to create different denominational expressions in the life of the church because they're doctrinal wrestling. And that would be helpful. There's also a work uh, where I contributed an article or two. It was edited uh, by uh, David Hall some years ago. It's called Confessional Subscription. I think if you're interested in the whole question, i well, how does a person subscribe to the confession that would be a quite a fine work. So there's three good examples. One is a popular one, why you need a creed. One is a good historical survey of all of it and then one that kind of narrows in on the question of how do you do subscription in a church and recognizing all those sorts of dynamics that I've already discussed briefly. And finally, I would urge everyone and of course you know I'm totally biased here. Forgive me for that. That's this. all right. That's but, all right. Uh, <laughs> I believe everybody should read the Westminster Confession of Faith at least once in their life, even if you disagree with key parts of it. There's never been more a significantly historical and succinct exposition of theology than what the um, divines at the Westminster Assembly did. This was kind of like the high-water mark of the Protestant Reformation. It was the high-water mark of confessionalism They had the finest English and Scottish theologians, Irish theologians well, all working together. And they put together uh, a theological system after literally years of hard work. It's succinct. It has biblical proofs associated with it to guide you in scriptural thinking. And it spans the great doctrines in a way that has a timelessness to it. And I think it would be a really great theological mile. Now, for those who say, man, I'll never get through a confession, then read the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I have told people, if you take time to study the Westminster Shorter Catechism and you can understand it, and if you can quote some of those answers that it puts to questions, you'll have more theology under your belt than 90% of the pastors who are leading churches today. There's never been a greater summary of the arsenal of the doctrine of of the biblical faith. Of course, it has a Reformed accent, but still there it's useful for the evangelical movement. I would urge people to take time to, to use that. So there's a breadth of opportunities there. I don't know which one is best for each of your listeners today, but I think that would be a good start.
0: No, I, I would commend all of those. And you're right, uh, a breadth there in terms of uh, the specific things that are dealt with and then the length and accessibility of each of those Dr. Lilbeck, thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy, and we really appreciate it. This has been extremely helpful for me, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. So thank you very much for joining
1: us. Well, thank you, Professor Masters. God bless you on your leadership as the Dean of Cairn, and also your work with uh, the great theological body that brings this discussion to the community.
0: You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to... Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.